you know, nurses every day are having to be very flexible and agile about issues that they are encountering and, and managing through that and, and being good at decision making. Um, and then finally, collaboration, because the whole industry is highly collaborative um, and they're used to working on teams on behalf of you know patients and their families. What exactly is the life sciences industry and what career opportunities are available for nurses in that flourishing space? Let's talk all about it with my guests, Janice Nissen and William Solomon, right here in episode 456 of The Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. This podcast is always about you and your personal and professional development, your career, and the healthcare system writ large. And I'm here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare, nursing, entrepreneurship, medicine, and beyond. I love having you along for the ride. And I thank you from the bottom of my nurse podcaster's heart for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. If you'd like to help other people find the show, the best way to do that is to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also do that on Google Podcasts or Amazon or Spotify, or just share the show from any app where you happen to be listening with anybody who you think might enjoy it or benefit from hearing it. And if you want to become a patron, you can go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Nurse Keith. As little as $2 a month can help us with production and to keep the lights on here at the Nurse Keith Show. So I appreciate you all so much. I appreciate you for being here. The show notes will be at nursekeith.com under the drop down menu saying that says podcasts, or of course, everything we talk about and all the links for my guests will be in the show notes on any app where you're listening. And like I said, we're here with Janice Nissen and William Solomon. William is the founder and CEO of the Accreditation Council for Medical Affairs, also known as ACMA. He's a pharmacy industry futurist, and we'll talk more about that. Janice Nissen is a healthcare professional and a biopharmaceutical executive. And we have a lot to talk about in the course of this show, especially around opportunities for nurses in this life sciences area. So William, I want to ask you first, what is ACMA, the Accreditation Council for Medical Affairs? I think many nurses, myself included, will probably never have heard of the organization before. Sure. That's a great question. Thanks again for inviting us. Excited to be here. So the ACMA or ACMA is, stands for the Accreditation Council for Medical Affairs. And we are the first and only accrediting body for the life sciences industry. So that includes the pharmaceutical biotech space. It includes other healthcare organizations. And the ACMA is probably most well known for establishing the first ever competency standards through certification for different areas of the pharmaceutical industry. So we certify, for example, medical affairs professionals, medical science liaisons, pharmaceutical sales representatives. We work with people that work in the area of prior authorization and market access and field reimbursement. So we work with many different kinds of professionals, of course, nurses included, because nurses play a really important role within the pharmaceutical industry, as we're going to get into later on, because of their really deep clinical backgrounds. So ACMA really is the first accrediting body in that space. And again, before we were uh, in existence, there was no organization that was setting standards for the industry. And you, you founded ACMA and there was no other organization like it when you first launched it? Yeah. So, you know, the organization was founded in 2015 and, you know, my background, as you mentioned, I came from the pharmaceutical industry and I worked in, you know, many different areas. Most of the time I spent was in an area called medical affairs, which for the audience members out there that don't know what that is, that is the, the area within the pharmaceutical industry that's involved in generating new research, new information about, about a drug or a product once that drug has been approved. And they're the, really the main people that are out there educating the healthcare providers on these products, on these disease states. So they are really the experts for that particular disease state, that particular product within the pharmaceutical company. Many of them are going to be physicians, pharmacists, PhDs, nurses, physician assistants, et cetera. And so, yeah, you know, when, when I came into this area, uh, there was no standard really. And, and, and really uh, what's important to understand is that 
within the pharmaceutical industry, the medical affairs function has only really been around formally probably for about 35 to 40 years. It used to be that people that were medical reported into marketing. And you can imagine how that was, right? That was a big mm -hmm. conflict of interest. And so it wasn't until really the early 2000s that medical affairs within the industry as a whole began to have reporting into either R&D or chief medical officers. But for a very long time, it was sales and marketing who really kind of directed data generation efforts in the pharmaceutical companies. And that was a problem because obviously, if you're working in sales or marketing, you're incentivized by prescriptions and sales metrics. Right, right. And Jan, your interface with ACMA and your interface with the biopharmaceutical world in general, where did that begin? Because I know you have a BSN and you also have an MBA. So how did you transition into that particular space? Yes. Yeah, so I did start my career as a nurse, actually working in medical and surgical ICU at a pediatric hospital. Um, but uh, very early on, probably after only about three years, I transitioned over to a life science company, Abbott Laboratories. And actually, my first role was as a nurse, a nurse clinician, setting up patients that were going home on enteral or parenteral therapy. Um, that business changed, and then I transitioned into more commercial roles of marketing, sales, operations, and communications. Um, uh, from there, I actually transitioned over to Merck and did similar roles, with the last one actually bringing me back to my nursing background in a big way because I led a center of excellence for patient engagement. And on that team, I had all medical professionals, um, physicians and nurses and advanced practice nurses um, with the goal of bringing the patient perspective into every aspect of where the, where the company were doing business from how we did clinical trials. Did they have patients endpoints uh, that were important to patients in mind. Um, how did we package products? Was it intuitive packaging? What, were there health literate instructions for use? Um, how we worked with actually patient advocacy groups to help promote policies that would support access and reimbursement. Um, and it was in that role that I began to see how many nurses in a company like Merck were working in so many different roles. Um, but in talking with those nurses, we realized we never learned about this industry, how it operates, how it's regulated, and even what opportunities were there for us to use our medical and clinical knowledge and importantly, our knowledge of patients. Well, you're touching on a nerve for me because I feel like nursing schools, of course, they're teaching to the NCLEX. So, you know, we have to give them that. But there's so many opportunities out there for nurses. and you know, schools are focused on mostly, um, to a large extent, acute care, acute care, acute care. And, you know, life science and the life science industry, um, biopharmaceuticals, I mean, medical device industry, there's so many interesting things nurses can do, but you have to learn about it by hook or crook elsewhere because you're not going to learn about it in nursing school. And this certified nurse medical affairs professional uh, program that's administered by ACMA. And is that where the gap is being bridged so that nurses can develop? Well, there's the knowledge and there's the there's the expertise, but then I guess there's also the credibility to break into the space. Is that certification kind of necessary in order to be taken seriously? Yes, I believe so. And, and that's really where the partnership began between myself and, and Will and ACMA uh, because um, I knew that this education gap existed and I wanted to fill it. And this became my passion when I retired from Merck was I'm going to deliver on developing this educational program. And fortunately, I found with Will's organization, they had a lot of that content about how drug development works, how clinical trials are set up, what does evidence-based medicine look like? What are all the regulations that are required to move a drug from discovery all the way to launch and post-launch? And what does that all look like? Uh, 
And so uh, with four other nurses at serving as a steering committee, we worked together to develop the program called the Certified Nurse Medical Affairs Professional. Um, and what's unique about it is that it does take nurses through everything that they need to know about how that industry operates and is regulated, but also it shares with them all the different roles that are possible for a nurse. What is that? What is the specific role? What is pharmacovigilance, for example? Most nurses don't know what that is. I didn't know what it was when I, I don't first know what came it is. into the industry. <laughs> and it's actually a really important role. It's it's essentially product and patient safety. So as uh, a product is going through clinical trials and development, and even after it's launched, watching for any adverse events that a patient may be experiencing and looking for trends that may require different labeling that needs to be uh, uh, brought forth so that we keep patients safe. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, as you can imagine, um, understanding adverse events and the medical complications for various patients, those are all skills that nurses have. And so this program um, gives them everything that they need to know about what roles might appeal to them um, in a life science company. And that when they apply, they know what sort of role they're applying for and how to tailor their resume to what that role's competencies are. Right. Tailoring the resume is really important. And William, I want to touch base about nurses in general when it comes to, to this industry. So, you know, we all have heard that the Gallup poll stats, you know, nurses are the most trusted professionals in the United States, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And members of Congress and people who sell used cars are at the other end of the spectrum. So we know this about nurses, right? And doctors and pharmacists are actually up there too, usually in the top five. So when it comes to nurses specifically, because this is really a nursing career podcast, that's most of my listeners. How do you view the role of nurses in in the industry so there's there's the patient facing part which would might be within clinical trials right but then there's there's the educational piece with providers so where are all the different places you feel like that that credibility that nurses carry and that trust and expertise they carry that you feel like kind of comes to bear the most in, in your experience through ACMA and all the work that you do? Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the things, you know, about nurses that I alluded to earlier is that they have that clinical experience. They've worked with patients. They understand the practical applications of these different principles in medicine. They already uh, are going to have been trained in many therapeutic areas in nursing schools. While they may not have learned about, let's say, pharmacovigilance, they understand the science and the, and the medicine. And that's huge because they can then hit the ground running. So they can work in areas like Medical information, for example, where um, these are departments in a pharmaceutical company where they're providing answers to questions that healthcare providers or staff or patients may have about, let's say, a particular adverse event that they may be experiencing or their patient is experiencing, or they want additional data on a particular you know thing related to the product. So providing information as a medical information specialist, analyzing data being able to analyze safety data, like Janice mentioned around pharmacovigilance or drug safety, analyzing that information, looking at different patterns of adverse events or safety signals that are concerning and reporting that to the organization. Because remember the pharmaceutical company, they are required to report adverse events or the adverse event reporting system to the FDA. Um, so that's one of the things that we actually train them on in this program. So why the CNMAP program I think is so valuable is that it really is that bridge to help people who want to work in the pharmaceutical industry, who are nurses, to hit the ground running. Another area that we talked about was medical science liaisons. And that area is a booming area today because uh, the majority of drugs that are actually in the pipeline within the FDA, if you look at the United States, for example, for approval, are mainly specialty drugs. And why do I bring that up? Because 
specialty drugs, which includes biologics, for example, they're more complex. They have a more complex mechanism of action. They have a little bit of a different or more unique sometimes delivery system, drug delivery system. And so pharmaceutical companies are looking for people that have that clinical background to educate their customers, which are their healthcare providers on. So this is a huge opportunity for nurses to, again, to apply that background and that training. One thing that I will say um, just about nursing schools in general uh, is that not to blame them completely for, you know, them not training, let's say, nurses in this area, making them aware, because in their defense, it's relatively new. Mm-hmm. Right. So even even the world of pharmacy, for example, we did a study and 75 percent of pharmacy graduates said we never heard of certain areas that you're talking about, like in the pharma industry. We hadn't heard of it. And so I think, you know, similarly for nurses, this is an evolving area, but it's quickly becoming an area that really represents a lot of opportunity for nurses that want to have a better work life balance, want to have, you know, a greater earning potential. And those those are important things. So I think for the list out there, if they're wondering, you know, if I was to go and work in an area in the pharmaceutical industry, what does a starting salary look like if you're a medical affairs professional or if you're working in a pharmaceutical company? And the answer is, if you look at the data comparatively, it is much higher than, you know, a more of a traditional nursing position. And there's perks associated with it, you know, working in industry. And the last thing I'll say is for a lot of nurses, at least from my experience, just like Janice, you know, they're very passionate about their profession and and working with patients and impacting patient lives. And the nice thing about the industry is you don't have to forsake that. When you work in the industry, you're still making an impact on patients' lives, but you're doing it like at a macro scale level. Hmm. So you're still, because, you know, when you're working on a clinical trial or you're generating data, you're writing a protocol for a study, that's going to impact hundreds, if not thousands of patient lives. So you are really, you know, impacting patients, but again, just on a a grander scale. That makes a lot of sense. And Janice, um, what are the characteristics of the nurses you find are drawn to this sort of world is are there commonalities among them that you feel like make them really good candidates for these types of positions yeah i would say that the first thing is is that they're very passionate about patients and about doing the right thing for patients is is sort of number one but the nurses that do very well in this industry they're also very good and i think most nurses are they're good critical thinkers You know, nurses are used to taking a lot of quantitative data, whether it be lab results or scans, and combining that with qualitative observational, what are they seeing with the patient? And being able to put those two pieces together to come up with, this is the right plan of action. This is the right approach for this patient. So the critical thinking is, is I think, another very important attribute that's very valuable to life science companies. And then agility. Right. So, you know, nurses every day are having to be very flexible and agile about, you know, issues that they are encountering and and managing through that and and being good at decision making. Um, And then finally, collaboration, because the whole industry is highly collaborative um, and they're used to working on teams on behalf of, you know, patients and their families. Mm-hmm. So those are, I would say, are the the main characteristics that make them well suited for this industry. I see. And William, what other medical professionals do you find are most drawn to the life science industry, and you know, uh, positions like medical science liaison or educator? Who else are the people you see who come through ACMA? It's a great question. In the beginning. Mm-hmm. It was mostly pharmacists. Makes sense. Okay. In the beginning. But over the years, what we've seen is that there are more physicians now that want to work in the pharmaceutical industry. And part of that is because medicine is changing. If you talk to physicians today, I have a lot of friends that are physicians. Administratively, there's more burden on them. There's greater liability and risk. Uh, Work-life balance sometimes isn't there. So they're looking for those other opportunities. So physicians are increasingly becoming more and more interested 
in industry, as our PhD professionals like myself, who, you know, see more opportunity outside of just the lab. And I think because of the advent, you know, quite frankly, of social media and the internet, it's created a greater flow of information than ever before. So today, it's much easier to find out that, oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a PhD or I'm a nurse. Oh, wow, these opportunities exist. Years ago, you know, when I worked in the industry back in the early 2000s when I started, there wasn't all, this, all these resources. So you, you really kind of found out all, oftentimes accidentally. Um, I know a lot of people that, for instance, were pharmacists who were professors in a pharmacy school. Pharma would go and recruit there. They had no idea. They, were, they would go to them and recruit them. Yeah, they, they didn't they didn't even know this opportunity or this idea even existed. And even myself, um, I had found out just through a mutual friend of mine, even oh, that you can work in, in pharma as a PhD and you can work in these different areas. I had, I had no idea. So I do think nowadays podcasts like yours are doing a great job of providing that information and other, you know, websites and, and, and resources like the ACMA now that provides that information. And that's opened up a whole new world to uh, nurses that, you know, they probably weren't even aware existed. And I do think that the advent of COVID and everything that happened on the heels of COVID, I think it, it for a lot of people, not just nurses, it made them rethink how they want to work, you know, how, you know, and how important flexibility is for me as a professional um, and being able to work, you know, in, in such a way that I have greater work-life balance. And I think people reevaluated a lot of things, I think, during the pandemic uh, that maybe they hadn't, you know, thought of before. That's a really excellent point. And a lot of nurses are jumping ship out of the clinical space. Unfortunately, many are actually leaving the profession altogether and even leaving healthcare. That's not something that any of us are really excited about seeing. Uh, but you know, there's always people who want to work at the bedside and that's awesome. We need as many clinicians as we can get because there's a constant shortage. But, you know, we have to admit, we have to see with clear eyes that, you know, the pharmaceutical industry is important and it has a place in this entire, you know, in the whole mechanism of how we treat illness and how we bring research to bear. And, you know, my brother has been a PhD level scientist. He worked for Bristol Myers Squibb and he's worked for a lot of biotech. And now he's a head scientist at the Wiese Institute at Harvard. So I've been exposed to a lot of the life sciences stuff through my brother and his, his world and the, the his work in the research world, um, all sorts of stuff that um, a lot of it, I can't even explain what he does. Um, at least he knows. Um, <laughs> But it's, it's, you know, it's fascinating, I think, for, for people who love data, they love information, they love educating, you know, they love learning. It, this seems like a great fit for particularly minded nurses and other healthcare professionals who want a different kind of lifestyle, like you said, a different kind of work style. And they don't necessarily necessarily want to be patient facing anymore or maybe in the clinical trial um, realm the patient facing work is different isn't it janice when you're working you know with patients in that kind of setting what is that like yes yeah, so definitely if you are a clinical research associate a cra uh clinical trial operations uh nurse researcher what you are doing is you are visiting uh, clinical trial sites, usually within a certain uh, defined territory. And you are working with their staff, the nurses and the investigator, to ensure that this trial is recruiting on time, um, on budget, that if there are issues with patients dropping out of the trial, that you are problem solving with them on how to improve that and ensure, because the faster that the trial completes and the data is collected, the faster that this innovation gets out to the market and to patients. Mm -hmm. um, it's, they also play a very critical role in ensuring what has become such a business imperative today, which is ensuring the right diversity of the patient population. Um, no, no more can we you know, um, avoid the fact that 
most of the people in clinical trials were white men, right? We need to ensure that we have the right balance between gender and all the different races uh, and groups that are represent our country today and the people that actually have the disease. And nurses can be a critical link to community resources where we can reach these particular patient groups, these underserved groups. Mm, well said. Well, when we come back from the break, I'd like to talk more about how the pharmaceutical industry has changed over the years. I think we would be doing this entire conversation a disservice if we didn't at least touch on the opioid crisis and just sort of, you know, just sort of touch down there for a few minutes and just discuss that. And a few other things that'll probably pop up along the way, especially steps nurses can take if they're even glancingly interested in this particular industry. So when we come back from the break, we'll dive into that and more. So hang in there with us and we'll be back for the second half of episode 456 of the Nurse Keith Show with Janice Nissen and William Solomon. And welcome back to the second half of the episode. We're here again with friends of the pod, William Solomon and Janice Nissen. And William, earlier we were talking about ACMA, the Accreditation Council for Medical Affairs. You're the CEO and founder. And you consider yourself, or many people consider you, a pharma industry futurist. And what does that mean to you, thinking about that? label or moniker of a futurist? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just kidding. I, I think, you know, part of that it comes from the fact that I have about 20 years of experience in the industry and I, I've pioneered, uh, you know, several new things in the industry within medical affairs um, and then working in management consulting, different things that I've implemented over the years. But I think what probably makes my background a little bit unique is that, you know, not only have I worked in industry and management consulting, but I've done a lot of work as well um, on the Hill, on Capitol Hill, and a lot of advocacy and lobbying work for the industry, both as a representative of the industry, but also as the founder of ACMA. And I think that the pharmaceutical industry has seen a lot of change in this last probably 15 to 20 years. And, uh, you know, you alluded earlier to the opioid crisis. I think that was like a watershed moment for the industry. And if we take a step back, if you go back all the way back, let's say to the year 2001, um, at that time I was at Merck and, um, that was kind of the the breaking point for the Vioxx debacle, where you know there was a lot of talk around the um, impact that Vioxx has on cardiovascular outcomes. You know that it could increase the chance of heart attack or stroke. And the reason why I bring that up is because if you remember, you know, if you go all the way back, Merck was really seen as like the pinnacle of ethics. Um, and accountability and always putting patients first in the industry. And this kind of put a question mark, not just only around Merck, but around the industry as a whole. You know, it was like, wait a second, you know, does the industry have information that's potentially hiding from patients, from physicians, et cetera? And of course, later on, we found out through court documents that in fact, there was data to suggest that Vioxx was causing, you know, cardiovascular events for patients. And of course, the product was eventually removed from the market. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is that from that time, from the early 2000s, up until the opioid crisis, there were a lot of things that were happening in the industry that many didn't know about or realize when it came to the marketing practices of the pharmaceutical industry. And this is why I'm, I'm such a firm believer that you need an organization like the ACMA or you need standards for the industry. But I think the opioid crisis was different because it was so many lives that were affected all around the country, right? And it wasn't just patients 
and oftentimes there were physicians that had gone addicted to these opioids. Some, in some cases, the physicians were selling the opioids. I knew one physician in particular who I had met, you know, we had done a, a TV show together and uh, we were invited as guests on the show. And, you know, so I'd gotten to know him prior to the show. And it was a sad story. This individual was a very well-known physician in the community uh, and um, ended up getting addicted to opioids and ended up, you know, becoming a drug dealer himself, ended up going to jail for almost a decade and, you know, ruined his life, ruined his family's life. And it was sad. It was sad to see how powerful this these addictions were to these opioids and if and if and, and i'm sure you know if, if anybody's out there who you know if you watch on netflix or hulu there's a bunch of shows out there now dope sick and other shows right. painkillers that's right matthew broderick there's a bunch of shows out there that talk about this story this story that really is resonating i think with a lot of lay people who are outside of the industry and what's it really a story about it's a story from my perspective about greed in the end of the day, it's about companies that wanted to uh, massage the data, so to speak, to put out this idea that these drugs aren't that bad in, in a way to make profit. And we see this happening, you know, oftentimes in the pharmaceutical industry. And so I think it's bad in a way because that, that this happened. But the good thing, the good thing that came out of the opioid crisis is that a lot more people were saying, wait a second. We need to look at the pharmaceutical industry practices. What are they? How do how do they market these products? What what are the regulations for pharmaceutical sales representatives? And that actually, you know, back in 2019, um, at the ACMA, we had a lot of media reaching out to us. Fox News and MSNBC and a bunch of them were saying, "Hey, we want you guys to talk about this because people aren't aware of what's happening in the industry." And and for us at the ACMA, we felt it was a big responsibility to really make sure people understood exactly how pharma industry practices work and what we can do to fix it. So I do think since that time, there's been improvements. We actually, I myself, I presented to uh, many of the uh, attorney generals across the country at the Attorney General's State Alliance. Of course, you may or may not know the attorney generals in many states who are suing the pharmaceutical companies because of the damages that they have caused in their states. Um, but, but I think ultimately what that did was it put senior pharma industry executives on high alert that people were watching and they were going to be held to a greater degree of accountability. And that's why going back to nurses, going back to the work that we're talking about, that's why I'm a big believer that if you're a nurse out there and you, and you want to work in the pharmaceutical industry or you work in the pharmaceutical industry, having a certification is huge because not only, yes, it's going to help you break into the industry. We know that we have data on that. It helps people break into the industry. But more than that, this is where the future is going. I believe in the next few years, these types of certifications will become a requirement for many who want to work in, this, in the industry or work in the industry. Today, we already work with about 200 pharmaceutical companies with the ACMA, and we see that many of them now are saying, yeah, we want to have this because they want to mitigate their, their risk and liability. Mm -hmm. And Janice, I'm sure you likely concur with that, that the certifications are going to become sort of de rigor and it's what just everyone's going to have to look towards if they want to kind of maintain their place and be credible in the space? Yes, because it gives you the background that you need um, in order to, you know, as Will said, not only to secure a position, but then, you know, the, it, it, it's also the commitment that you're staying up to date on the developments that are happening um, in the industry and that you are maintaining that, you know, high level standard um, that we are seeking within the industry. Mm -hmm. And Jan, and you have a BSN and an MBA. Um, mm -hmm. How important do you feel like an MBA is in the context of a nurse wanting to work in this area, especially if they want to move into more like executive positions like you've held, you know, you've been in the biopharmaceutical world and had executive positions that you've worked at Merck, you've worked for Abbott, mm -hmm. is that, and you even consult with NIH. So is that MBA, do you feel like it's critical or is it just something that adds a certain, I don't know, gives, gives you more of that understanding of the economics underpinning the industry? 
Yes, I, for me, I pursued it because, um, again, with a nursing background, I had no sense of of the economics, as you had mentioned, and and um, the ways to measure the financial strength of the company. Um, and I, I felt that that was really important for me at the at the time, and that it it, it provided that background that I I felt that I really needed. Uh, for many people, you know, you can get that though sort of on the job. So mm-hmm. once you're within the industry, and that's you know, Will talked about you know the work environment and the compensation, but the professional development that you also get at a life science company is absolutely, I think, unparalleled. There is a constant investment um, once you are an employee in yourself um, and in your development and a lot of opportunity for career advancement as well. You mean- Which I think- You mean you don't just get a tote bag and a and a mug at Nurses Week and maybe a, maybe a slice of pizza? <laughs> There's a little bit more than that, Will? <laughs> <laughs> just yeah there's, de- there's definitely there's definitely more than that I, I agree with janice i mean mm-hmm. they they do a pretty good job of really investing in people and you learn a lot of those core business skills yes yeah, so, i mean look it's it's invaluable experience uh, i mean going back to merck the training i learned i had a merck it was intense it was probably three month training and uh you go away and you, you have the training and it's it's phenomenal nowadays you know a lot of it can be done in a hybrid or at home but it's sure. fantastic. I mean, you really get immersed and you learn a lot about corporate world and business and how everything works. And you said that salaries are highly competitive. I'm sure um, vacation time and personal time is, and other, you know, 401ks and things like that are probably, I bet, much more robust than you might find as a nurse working in a hospital. And by Absolutely, the way, yeah. many life science companies are still the last companies to still offer a pension Hmm. Um, and with vesting after usually only five years. So that is something that I guess I'm more of the age where that becomes important. But for many people starting out, they should think about that. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, I know we have to wind down, but Will, in in our exchanging notes back and forth in the run up to you all being on the show, you mentioned something about the impact of the wars that are going on around the world and the pharma industry and pricing. So just for in a, in a few minutes, can you just paint a picture of what those impacts are? Because it's probably something most of us don't really think about. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's a great question. Um, I talk about this, uh, you know, uh, on my TikTok channel. So for those that are interested in following me, uh, we'll I will Solomon. I, I, yeah, I'll send you a link to that. But I, I cover topics like that. So, hmm. you know, what people don't realize is Ukraine actually is uh, a major producer of many raw materials uh, that are used for pharmaceutical products, pharmaceutical ingredients to use, that are used to make medications. And so uh, that war has actually caused a problem with the supply chain. So the supply chain has been uh, impacted for many pharmaceutical companies. And that's caused a situation where production has been more costly, more timely, and that can impact, you know, the overall uh, price of these products that are going out. And as as you already know, uh, affordability in healthcare is a big topic. Right. Every election, that's what a lot of uh, candidates talk about. So it's a big issue, drug pricing and affordability. So certainly that definitely makes uh, a big difference. Um, And so I think that combined with some of the instability happening today in the Middle East with the Israel Hamas war, um, there's a there's a little bit more hesitation as well with the companies in terms of maybe investing in certain things. There's a little bit of concern about, you know, what that's going to mean, especially for ex-U.S. markets. So in general, when things like that happen, just from my experience of working in the industry, uh, you know, senior executives kind of take a little bit more caution when they're making certain investment decisions. I mean, uh, we at the ACMA, we actually have quite a bit of business in the Middle East, uh, specifically in uh, now the UAE and Saudi Arabia, mainly because those areas are growing so much in the Middle East and Israel as well. 
Um, but we've seen since since the war, for example, between Israel and Hamas, that uh, companies there are concerned, you know, about what's happening, and sometimes they they shift strategy based on that. So certainly, I think that'll you know potentially have an impact on drug pricing and strategy, and maybe you know launches and things like that. Yeah, and I just think about the articles we read or videos we see about people who rely on medications for ADHD, ADD, and how, you know, some of these medications just seem to be unavailable right now. And that's, that's not an easy thing for people who rely on them. And that probably is impacted by the the Ukraine connection you were mentioning. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's troubling. Um, As we wind down, I just wanted to ask you both a couple more questions. So, Janice, the the positions that nurses want to do research on, like if somebody wants to just hop on Indeed or Glassdoor or LinkedIn and just look at like, okay, so let me just see what's out there just to get a sense. So we're looking at medical science liaison, right? MSL, that's one position. What are the other ones that would be key ones for nurses to research? Yes. So I would also encourage nurses to look at pharmacovigilance or product safety. Okay. Uh, I would encourage them to look at clinical trial operations, regulatory affairs, um, outcomes research um, as well, uh, nurse educator, and patient engagement. Okay. So those that's a broad array of positions. Will, do you agree? Are those sort of the, the go-tos yeah. for nursing cl- professionals? Yeah, those are great. I think those are all great suggestions. And those are, again, all very rapidly growing areas. So, Yeah. And if someone visits the website of ACMA, the Accreditation Council for Medical Affairs, what what do they find there? What What should they be looking for? What should they hope to see when they go there? So the website they'll want to go to, and we can put a link um, at the bottom, but it's, it's nurse2pharma.org. We have actually a dedicated website for nurse professionals. And so that's probably the best site to go to there. And once they get there, it's pretty straightforward where they can learn more information about CNMAP um, and uh, learn more about the content, the curriculum, how to enroll. Uh, the ACMA, we have a 24-7 live chat, so we're always here to answer any questions that anyone has about the program, the curriculum. You can feel free to either email us, chat with us, or call us, and we'll be more than happy to help direct you and guide you and determine if this is really the best program for you. Great. So we'll have links to nurse2pharma.org. We'll have a link to medicalaffairsspecialist.org. Mm-hmm. We'll have a link to, Will, your TikTok and your LinkedIn and sure. to Janice's LinkedIn. So people can connect with you and message you and let you know that they heard you here on the Nurse Keith Show. And before we go, I have four lightning round questions I ask all my guests and they're completely unrelated to anything we've already been talking about. <laughs> and... um <laughs> One thing about this is that since there's two of you, we'll have to be a little more lightning roundish because for in the interest of time. And also each of you are going to get a preview of the next question. So you get to cheat each of you on two out of the four <laughs> questions. So you can formulate an answer while the other person is responding. Um, so Janice, we're going to start with you. And the first question is, how do you define success either personally or professionally? Success is the, the the best outcome for the person mm-hmm. or the organization. Mm-hmm. Okay. How about you, Will? I would say, you know, professionally, success would be, did you achieve what you set out to achieve? So what you wanted to achieve. So if, you know, if you're an organization and you had these goals in mind and that's how you define success for your organization, you look back, you know, a year later and ask yourself, did we achieve that outcome? I think also for an organization like the ACMA, for us, success is looking at our graduates, you know, um, many of them come back to us and say, it was great that I did this program. I landed this role. It changed my life. We have many stories like that. So mm-hmm. to me, that's a success. When I see that the impact of the good work we're doing really is changing lives. That's great. It's a nice feeling. Yeah. And yeah. Will, then the next question is, 
Would you mind naming or describing a person who's inspired you in the course of your life? They could be living or dead. They could be a very famous person or someone who none of us would ever have heard of and just has personal meaning for you. Yeah, that's a great question. A person that came to mind is my mother. Uh, my mother passed mm. away a few years ago, but one thing about her that uh, always I admired was her unwavering principles. She had very strong principles and a strong moral compass. And I think that uh, even when, you know, things didn't go her way or whatnot, uh, especially towards the end, she had died of brain cancer, seeing her, you know, just her principles and her strength and courage. That was really inspiring to me to see how she dealt with that hardship. Hmm. Well, I'm sorry you lost her and I've Thank lost you. mine as well. And um, it's lovely Sorry. for you to bring her into the conversation. And many guests actually do mention mothers um, and grandmothers. They they come yeah. up a lot in this, this question. How about you, Jan? Who comes up for you? So for me, because I am, a, I would say, a student of healthcare, the person that I most admire is Barack Obama hmm. for bringing forward the Affordable Care Act and fundamentally changing um the fact that we have healthcare for pe- for 30 million people that we never had before and that it's it is highly satisfying to most Americans today after 10 years i actually have insurance through the exchange and it's been actually pretty good so i i concur with you on that okay so the third question janice you get this next one first is there a book or a movie it doesn't have to be an absolute favorite cuz that's that's hard for many of us to put our finger on, but just a book or movie that holds meaning for you in some way, like it it's impacted the way you think, the way you live your life, anything like that at all. Just something that's important to you as a person. Well, um, I will say what's important to me is any movies that are musicals because oh. I love music. And I think that it's when you are listening to music, you are put in a much more creative mode and um, and it you can do your best work. Mm. And so I very much admire musicals and people that can actually have a talent like that, that I very much admire. I like that. My, my mom was a New Yorker and um, she was a Juilliard trained concert pianist, but Ooh. one of her loves was musical wow. theater and she wrote a lot of kind of Broadway style musicals. So I, I appreciate that a lot. How about you, Will? What comes up for you around either books or movies or things that are important to you? Well, you said what came to mind. So it's it's probably not the most uh, politically correct answer, but it would be for me, Goodfellas. I yeah. don't know why that came to mind when you- You're a good Jersey boy. Come on. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I, I think, you know, I think that movie uh, resonates with me because of- the uh, I guess loyalty, the loyalty that many of them have to each other in the mafia. Um, you know, obviously they do a lot of bad stuff, but for the most part, many of them are pretty loyal to you know what they're to each other and what they're trying to accomplish. So there's something to be said for that at least. But uh, I, that's mm-hmm. what came to mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of Jersey Jersey boys love the Sopranos and Goodfellas, stuff like that. No, I, I, I actually, I, I tell you, I actually came this close to being in the Sopranos as an extra. No, really? Yes. Wow. I was awesome. I was in New Jersey. This is a long time ago. It was about 20, 20 probably over 20 years ago. But yeah. I was going into um, a party box and this, I guess they were filming Sopranos by, by, which is what they call in the show Bada Bing. But it's actually that Bada Bing club is really the satin dolls in, in New Jersey here. <laughs> and uh, when I when they saw me, one of them came over to me and said, would you be interested in being an extra as part of like their group that they were like commiserating together. And I thought that was interesting, but I couldn't cause I was in a rush. I had to get somewhere. Oh man. I couldn't actually say, but I thought it was like, it's like my missed opportunity. You never know what could have happened. Yeah. Will, you could have been a contender. <laughs> I could have been a contender. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's awesome. That's, that's great. really great. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a movie industry here in New Mexico and my, my ex-wife once was in a scene for Breaking Bad and it got cut oh, wow. at the last minute and she was so bummed, but you know, oh my gosh. You, ne- you never know, you know, these things happen, but it's wow. kind of big out here in, in New Mexico. So, um, okay. So Will, last question. And this, this gives Janice a big head start on thinking about this one. So, Will, if you were named king of the world tomorrow, 
what's one of the first things you'd want to do to improve the lives of your subjects? Bearing in mind, you'd have ultimate power and you could do anything, but what's one of the first things with a flourish of your, your scepter you would want to do for your subjects? Hmm. You know, I would say, you know, and in, in, in at least in America here, I think there's, there's still a, a good level of disparity uh, or a gap when it comes to the, the people that are living, you know, uh, in a, in a lower socioeconomic status versus those that are middle class or upper class. So doing something to help those, the, that, those folks, I think that's important. Um, I didn't say this, but you know, one of my first jobs out of college, actually, I was a teacher. I was a high school teacher. I taught chemistry and, um, you know, I taught in an inner city area. I did it for a little bit before I pursued a PhD. And, uh, a lot of those students, you know, unfortunately, they, they have a more difficult time being able to accomplish what others can accomplish just because of the fact that they have a lower socioeconomic status. They don't have as many opportunities. And, yeah. you know, that's, that's stuck with me. And uh, so being able to do something maybe to help those folks, I think would be important. So you would be a contender then, see? There you go. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> King of the world. And um, Janice, how about you as queen of the world? What, what do you envision as an action you would want to take? I'd figure out a way to stop these two wars that we have going on. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Like I think a lot of people would appreciate that in, in those areas and everywhere else around the world. So you all are really wonderful. This has been a great conversation. I think the, you know, the life sciences and the work that ACMA is doing and these opportunities for nurses and other healthcare professionals are important, especially as we have more clinicians who feel like they need to leave the bedside, but they still want to contribute. And there's lots of ways to contribute in this world. Not everybody has to be at the bedside. And I, thanks for, you know, making these opportunities available and educating those of us who need to be educated about what we can actually accomplish if we want to do something a little different. So thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thanks for having us. Pleasure. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Nurse Keith Show. And you heard it here first. William Solomon could have been a good fellow. He was so close. Oh, well, actually, <laughs> could have been on The Sopranos, you know. But you heard it here first on The Nurse Keith Show. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You feel uplifted and empowered from this episode. If you need personalized holistic career coaching to elevate your career, look no further than Nurse Keith Coaching. Check out nursekeith.com, mention the show and get 10% off your first coaching package. And if you'd like to review the show at iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please do so. We greatly appreciate ratings and reviews. We're proud members of the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com. And we are adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting. Before we say goodbye, I'll leave you with this quote by Albert Schweitzer. Success is not the key to happiness. Happiness is the key to success. If you love what you're doing, you will be successful. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico. Janice Nissen saying adieu from Philadelphia. And the inimitable William Solomon saying arrivederci from New Jersey. My land of my birth. All right. Thank you both so much. <laughs> Thanks to everyone for listening. And we'll catch you on the proverbial flip side.